The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. The splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble heart, the feeble hands. Steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, Be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. It will be for those who walk on that way. The the unclean will not journey on it. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor any ravenous beast. They will not be found there. But only the redeemed will walk there, and those the Lord has rescued will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. Well, it's Christmas Eve, and I wonder, have you done all the shopping? I don't know whether you've done all the wrapping. Some of us haven't. But I guess most of you have made the Christmas puddings, baked the mince pies, collected the turkey, if not cooked it, and bought the Quality Street. Yes, are we ready for Christmas is always the question you ask on a book, on a Christmas Eve. But it's also the fourth Sunday in Advent. And that's a special time in the church calendar when we look forward and we think a little bit more deeply about what Christmas is all about. And this year, Simon has very kindly and very helpfully focused our thinking around several of the passages in Isaiah. This is a prophecy that points forward to Christmas, and it reminds us of some of the big truths that help us to live faithfully and well as God's people today. So after pondering whether you're ready or not for Christmas, as you sit in church this morning, I wonder where you are. How are you feeling? It's always a question I ask when I sit in church. I'm famed for sitting in the back pew, as you may know, some of you. 
And we wonder about those who are fretful, wondering about all that needs to be done, those who are delighted that family are coming or have arrived, or perhaps we reflect on times past. As I was preparing this, I was reminding myself that six years ago I sat on a Christmas Eve service cradling a new grandson, barely four weeks old, and remembering this is the magic of Christmas. For others, of course, it's a sad time because we don't have close... Those who are close to us are no longer here. Some have enjoyed baking for family. Some have enjoyed nativity plays. Some people are simply worn out, exhausted for the last few months and weeks. And other people are in a darker place because money's been tight and they're wondering how they're going to pay the visa bill in January. We each come from different places with different experiences to worship God. And God asks us, where are you? Today, as the fourth Sunday in Advent, it's down as a time of joy and hope and celebration, hence our last, the last hymn. And it's that note that is sounded in Isaiah 35. He retells the story of how God guided, and we listen again to his words of hope and light and joy. I want to spend a few moments just giving a very brief overview, a few big brushstrokes about Isaiah before we deep dive into the passage. Isaiah 35 is almost in the middle of the book. So after chapters of gloom and judgment and despair, here we come upon this little gem of joy and hope and rejoicing. And you might ask yourself the question, how can Isaiah, amidst all the gloom that he's been preaching and living, have the kind of confidence to be able to speak words of hope and joy and rejoicing. Well, the secret of his confidence comes when we go back to chapter 6 and verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, in other words, when the world was turned upside down for the people of Israel, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord seated on a throne. So he, here is Isaiah reminding himself that God is on his throne. God is in control of the world. And then Isaiah 35 goes on to give us a glimpse of what might be possible when God breaks into human history. The passage calls us to remember, and the most key verse is number four, when he says to us, your God. That's the key of the book, the key of the chapter. And we notice that it's not God, it's not the God of the Israelites, it's not the Lord of hosts, it's your God. The personal pronoun is there for a good reason. And it's this God that sets the direction of history and says, Isaiah, he's on the move again. Now, I think it's important to remember that for the Israelites, they knew God as creator, but they also knew God as redeemer and rescuer. He brought them out of Egypt, out into the Exodus. And Isaiah is very conscious of those two themes. And he reminds us to listen to this God as an inspiration to live and go forward into the future. He reminds the people of God that the future is in God's hands and the redeemed 
will enter Zion singing. And that's a message that Isaiah preaches that lifts the spirits and points them in a very new and clear direction. It reminds us again that our God is active in his world. But let's turn to the passage. Isaiah begins and he talks about desert, wilderness, parched ground. Now for his hearers, that prompt was a reminder of the time when the people of Israel had come out of Egypt and gone through the Exodus, where the people had literally trudged through the desert, through the wilderness, through a parched land. And the picture that he then goes on to paint is one where there's new life, new color, joy and singing. And this God will transform the wilderness into this beautiful place and God's glory will be revealed. In other words, instead of barren hillsides, there will be beautiful hills like the cedars of Lebanon and the valley floors will simply be richly carpeted with vineyards. Isaiah's trying to convey to us how the desert is transformed into a kind of Garden of Eden. I don't know how many of you have ever been to the Eden Project. I went recently. And the story, of course, of the Eden Project is of desolate land suddenly transformed into this glorious oasis. Poor analogy, but that's what the Isaiah is trying to say to us. Of course, the language that Isaiah uses would be especially meaningful for those who lived in the land. Because for them, the desert wasn't just a figure of speech. It was a place of death, a hostile environment, an alien place. And now Isaiah prophesies and says, we will see God's glory in a place gloriously transformed. And so Isaiah wants to remind the people that he's speaking to, not just that the desert will be transformed so that they can see the beauty of creation, He reminds them, and they will see the glory and the splendor of our God. And it's so very typical of Isaiah that he picks up the Exodus theme and he picks up the the creation theme and blends them together. I think that's an important point. We often stress that God is Redeemer. He saves his people from Exodus. He saves his people today. But this God who rescues people from Egypt is also a powerful God. He's the creator God. And it's those twin truths that need to be held together. God is loving, compassionate, gracious, a rescuer. But he's also the mighty, powerful creator. And we fail ourselves if we don't hold those two twin truths together in creative tension. And Isaiah then moves on, and he calls the people to strengthen their hands, steady their knees, and have their hearts nourished. Fascinating, isn't it, that Isaiah turns from the big truths about God in creation to the individual who's got feeble hands, wobbly knees, and is afraid. But one of the great 
grounds of encouragement from this passage comes in verse 4. I've mentioned it just briefly before. He says, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. This is fascinating because the emphasis here is on the personal pronoun. It's your God, not any old God, not the Lord of hosts, not Yahweh, but your God. You'll remember in Isaiah chapter 40, we sometimes read it as part of the Christmas story. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And again in verse 9 of chapter 40. Lift you who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a hill, say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. And there are times when we need to hear the great truths that we worship a creator God who transforms the desert and a redeemer, rescuer God who delivers his people out of Egypt. But this mighty, this loving God is your God. It's personal. And let me pause just as the preacher and ask, I wonder if he's that for you today. Not God, not Lord of hosts, whatever, but your God. The one you follow, the one you pray to, the one you speak with, and the one you trust with your life. Sometimes modern translations are great, sometimes they're absolutely appalling. But Eugene Peterson, when he did the message, did got something very cleverly together. The official blurb is, it's a translation of the Bible in contemporary English, combining the authority of God's word with the cadence and energy of conversational English. I like that because he captures our passage beautifully. Tell fearful souls, courage, take heart. Your God is here right on his way to put things right. And then Isaiah moves on very quickly in verses 5 to 6 to describe what God's work really looks like. He makes his people new. Disabilities will disappear. Weaknesses of the past will be transformed into new abilities. God is transforming his people as well as God is transforming nature. And we see how God transforms People with eyes of the blind, opened ears, unstopped. But then we notice water will gush in the wilderness. The burning sand will become a pool. The thirsty ground, bubbling springs. This is our God, says Isaiah, and he's on the move, changing, transforming, renewing life. That must have been a huge tonic to those who are listening to the prophet as he spoke. And then we turn to the final scene in verses 8 to 10. When the people will return to Zion along a specially built highway, a road that will be called the Holy Way or the Way of Holiness. We notice that it's a highway. In other words, it's a causeway that's been raised above the surrounding countryside, so it's unmistakable. It's the way of holiness. 
The unclean can't travel in it. That's because Isaiah is understanding the Levitical laws and applying them in the the context in which he's speaking. That's not a sermon for Christmas Eve. I'm happy to chat sometime about it more, but not this morning. But we notice in passing that God never reduces the standards, his standards, to match the weaknesses of his people, but raises his people to the heights of his standards. It's the redeemed who will walk there. And then we have this interesting verse translated, the wicked fools will not go about on it. What a dreadful translation of the Hebrew. Much better to say, and the sense is, the simple will not lose their way. The simple will not lose their way. In other words, this holy way will be clearly marked, free of obstacles, so nobody, whether you're wise or simple, will go wrong as they proceed to Zion. I always find that tremendously encouraging. It'll be fairly simple and straightforward. No mistakes. Wild beasts will be kept at bay. The people will be protected because God will be their vanguard and their rear guard. But as we think about the text, I wonder if we understand some of the implication of it. God doesn't promise here through Isaiah to obliterate the wilderness. God never promises us a magical experience of time travel so we escape having to go through the wilderness. Neither are we promised a magical elimination of the wilderness experience. Instead, God's advent talks about a new way, a holy way, right through the core of the wilderness. And I think that's a truth that we need to hold on to. God doesn't eliminate for us the reality of wilderness. Instead, he promises a new, transformed, holy way of living. God doesn't take our wilderness experiences away. We might wish he did, but he doesn't. But we're reminded from this passage that God's presence and God's guidance are revealed in the wilderness. And that's very much a biblical theme. Think about Moses. He was in the, in the desert, feeling pretty hot. He's back to the wall. And he suddenly comes upon a burning bush. And suddenly in the wilderness, he sees God and he experiences God. We have Elijah who's done great things for God on Mount Carmel and then flees to the desert because a woman was trying to kill him. And then he suddenly meets God in the wilderness. And the Bible is filled with examples time and again of how God changes the wilderness, not by taking us out of it, but by being there with it. And I think that's quite a tough truth that we need to get our minds around sometimes and struggle to do so. If you want to think more and explore that more, John Swinton, in his book Raging with Compassion, writes beautifully and very provocatively and helpfully about how do we live faithfully as God's people in the midst of wilderness and difficult situations. And then we reach the final lines. Astonishing. We're going to wear crowns of joy because gladness and joy will overtake us. I find it fascinating that we're going to be overtaken by gladness, consumed by joy, captured by happiness. 
overtaken by gladness, consumed by joy, captured by happiness. That's quite a prospect, isn't it, to look forward to. But for now, we get tiny glimpses of what that might look like. I'm sure we've all experienced the experience of a, a sudden rush of happiness and joy and delight when we meet, we encounter somebody that we haven't seen for years or an unexpected surprise. I remember many years ago planning my mother's 80th birthday party. It was a, a secret that was well kept. Nobody, she had no idea. She turned up at the church with about 80 or 90 people in the church hall. And as she walked in the door, she walked in and suddenly the sight that greeted her was quite amazing. She was stunned into silence. I thought she was about to have a heart attack, but it didn't matter. <laughs> she then afterwards said to me, what a delightful surprise. We all have those kind of experiences that we remember being surprised in that situation. But flooded with joy, overtaken with delight, swept away in a tide of gladness. Isaiah says to us, one day that will happen and it will characterize our everyday living. It's C.S. Lewis who obviously talks to us about joy and he describes it as the serious business of heaven. Instead of sadness and sorrow, joy will be the landscape of the new creation. We're all familiar with happiness and happy events, births and weddings and graduations and celebrations, but joy, that's a bit more unpredictable because its roots run deep. Joy emerges from the deep down belief the bottom line issue that a God of love rules the world and his good purpose won't be thwarted. Joy believes that God's goodness and his grace will endure beyond anything else. And we're reminded that the God we worship and serve is a loving God and a powerful God. And it was out of that conviction the joy of God's goodness and God's grace that the early Christians were able to outlive, outlove and outdie the pagan world. But let's be honest. With Isaiah's talk of a new creation might be for you a distant dream because you might be in a very different place. Well, it becomes our holy responsibility to come alongside those who are hurting, the weak, the vulnerable, and point them to a better day. The wilderness will not triumph. God will triumph because God is coming, has come, and will come again. I often talk in my working situation with people who are struggling to make sense of their experience that we often understand life backwards but we have to live it forwards. And by that I mean we often turn around and say to ourselves, my lived experience is this, this and this, and God hasn't let me down so far. And that's the confidence that we need to live forwards. But not always do we have that kind of confidence because life shakes us and the foundations quake. But scripture, you'll be aware, time and time again says to the people of God, remember when God, remember when God, 
And it's with that confidence and assurance that God did it once, he's going to do it again, that allows us to go forward. But you know, you and I this morning, as Christian people, can go one step beyond anything that Isaiah said. He talks in verses 2 that they will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. They must have been really excited by that idea. But we are privileged people because we know that glory and splendor of God took flesh and blood and lived amongst us. This Christmas, this God came at Christmas and we celebrate his coming. He came and he comes to you and me again as the God of love and offers us a new way of living. This God, yes, the creator God, is also the God who loves us. I don't know why, whether you've ever sat in church, I've sat a number of Christmases, and asked myself the question, why, God, did you ever send your only son clad in flesh? Why would you ever put that upon your only son? He did that to plead with you and with me. Walter Scott, in his book, The Heart of Midlothian, has a lovely scene. Jeannie is determined to go and speak to the Duke of Argyll in London. Her friend, Reuben, tries to dissuade her from travelling to London. Write a letter instead, he suggests. And she replies delightfully in this way, We must try all means, but writing winna do it. A letter canna look and pray and beg and beseech as the human voice can do to the human heart. God sent his son clad in flesh and blood to plead with you, with me. Here in Christmas time, we see the creator God stepping down in flesh and blood to tell us how much he loves us. My question to everyone here this morning, is that your God? It is mine, and it's a cause for real celebration. So life can be overtaken by gladness, consumed by joy, and captured by happiness. Amen. We'll sing our last hymn.